And I just felt like, okay, this is the time I need to say something. And so I just stopped him on the edge of the green and just said, yeah, hey, if, if you want to win this tournament, you have to commit to your swing. And welcome back to another part train. I'm one of your co-hosts, Seven Singer. We got Matt Cermak here. Thanks, everyone, for jumping aboard. In case you're new, our mission on the part train is to help frustrated golfers enjoy the ride again on and off the course. And we believe that if you can learn to smile through bad golf, all the ups and downs, you can smile through anything. We feature interviews from PJ Tour pros and their caddies like Tim Mickelson today, best-selling authors, CEOs, mental coaches, and many more to make the hardest game in the world feel easy and give you guys the tools to enjoy the ride. Matt and I are fired up, but before up. we talk about this interview with Tim, we got to give a quick word from our friends at Roback. Guys, this is coming out on Sunday. Father's Day is going to be in a couple weeks, and you guys got to get those gifts in soon. Sometimes a holiday like Father's Day sneaks up on you. You don't know what to get them. Roback is the perfect gift or any dad. They've got the best polos in the game, four-way stretch. The collars stay nice and crisp. So if the dads want to wear them at the barbecue or at a restaurant, they can. And they can also wear them on the golf wow. course. The quarter zips, the hats, the, oh, if they want good loungewear, the hoodies are just about to drop again. The t-shirts for if they're around the house, mowing the <laughs> lawn. I mean, Matt, is there any better gift than Roback? For it's the, it's the best. I mean, it's getting too warm for vests, but you know, I love my, I love, I got four or five vests. From That's um, true. I mean, go for a run along the lake, you know, love, love the t-shirts. So no rollback, uh, rollbacks here for father's day. Check it out guys. Don't just go to rollback.com. Go to our show notes or our Instagram or Twitter. It's always linked in our bio. Um, and you'll get a special link for part train listeners only. That'll give you 15% off your first order. So you're getting a deal and you're going to get him the best gear he's ever had. I guarantee you, I got my, uh, girlfriend's dad, some rowback stuff. Now, every time I see him, he's wearing a rowback polo and a Q-zip. He wears a hoodie every time he flies in. That's all he wears now. And I guarantee that's going to happen with your dad. So you know what? You wouldn't be here without your dad. Get your dad something nice. Or if you're a dad, get, some, get yourself something nice. Just get him some rowback and everybody wins too. You get the discount. He's happy. We're having fun. Also, check out thepartrain.com because our hats oh. sold out in 24 hours. And now we're getting all these requests on Instagram and Twitter to uh, sell and create ball markers, um, custom tees, custom towels. So we're, we're taking your feedback. We're looking into vendors right now. And uh, we have a brand new website, thepartrain.com. Check that out. Watch our Instagram because hopefully in the next few weeks, we should have um, some news on some new stuff. So maybe a divot tool, that. maybe a koozie. I mean, you know, Cermak keeps pushing for the koozie. I don't know about the koozie. Maybe we'll get the koozie. I don't know. Uh, all right, Serm, this, this was a real thrill for us today. Yeah. This episode with tim mickelson himself phil's caddy right after two weeks after the pga and we got him for a full hour we dug into things deeper than any other interview i've heard with with phil or tim we really were grateful for the time and 
I really do believe, sir, that there is number one, so interesting and engaging to hear about their dynamic, to hear about their routine, to hear about what they're working on, but also the mental game side that they that people can use to benefit their own game. Yeah. It was really cool. Definitely one of our special episodes because of just the timing and that historic accomplishment that him and his brother were able to do <laughs> at the PGA. But you know what struck me, Ev, is Tim is intense. He's fired up. He's got the drive. And, you know, obviously being a college coach and a great player, it doesn't surprise me. But, you know, he hasn't done lots of interviews. You know, I don't think we really know, you know, Tim Mickelson super well. And uh, it was really cool, like you said, to get a look into the preparation going into the PGA, Phil's mindset, on course discussions back and forth, you know, and what's coming next with the U.S. Open down you know, around the corner in, in their backyards. Yeah. You know? If you guys so, don't stay to the end of this interview, you're a fool because we talk about how the hell they keep the noise out and keep this good mojo going for the U.S. Open, guess what, in their hometown at Torrey Pines in San Diego. Um, and I think he said some really interesting stuff there. So make sure you listen to the end. And he even said, maybe he'll come back after the U.S. Open. Maybe Tim Mickelson's a yeah. staple on this show now. Who knows? A great interview. You guys are going to love this. Yeah, one of my favorites for sure. Okay. Well, thank you guys so much, as always, for hopping aboard. Give us a uh, follow at the part train on all the socials. You won't regret it. Some people, sir, have been DMing us that they didn't know about the podcast. They said the Instagram alone is changing their mental game. Imagine if they listen to the podcast. So if you're not tuning into the Instagram, not everything from this podcast is on the Instagram and vice versa. So you should probably follow us uh, and give us a subscribe. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. And as always, no matter how you're hitting it, I don't care if you're hitting it left or you're used to hitting it right. I don't care if you're leaving everything short or if you're hitting everything long. What do they got to do, Sarm? Enjoy the ride. Enjoy the ride, guys. Take care. See you. And we are back with a man that I don't think needs much of an introduction, even though we record those separately, Tim. We've got Tim Mickelson. We're so excited to have you on the show. For those that aren't on video, he is wearing the PGA Championship bib right now. Wow. Tim, we're pumped to have Looking you on the good. train. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'd love being able to talk about some victories, so let's get into it. <laughs> All right. So really important question, Tim, to start. Would you have still accepted this interview as an ASU, former ASU coach and alum, if you would have known that I went to the University of Arizona? <laughs> Actually, probably not. You're right about that. <laughs> but let's just say it now, go Devils. <laughs> all right, perfect. I'm hey, glad I all, mentioned we that. All <laughs> we all make mistakes in life. You obviously wow. made one, but you've done okay for yourself. So I'm very happy for you. Although you guys got to have a soft spot for Tucson, considering Phil won there as an amateur. We do, and we also feel like we dominate in football down there, so it's almost like a second home to us. Sure, sure. Okay, well, I'm glad I didn't mention I it, it before, yeah. and I, I waited till we were on the air. Um, so I got to ask you, this is another thing that's been weighing on my mind. I just have to ask you out of the gate. We're going to dig in on mental game because that's what we're all about. We're going to talk about your career, the PGA, obviously. But first, I've always wondered this. As a PGA Tour caddy, how tired are you 
after carrying a four, I assume it's over at least 40 pounds, one of those tour bags every day. Have you built up the muscle, the, the, the tour caddy muscle, or are you pretty exhausted after each round? So I think every caddy has some sort of physical issues from carrying the bag. And a lot of us deal with lower back and like hip flexor issues. Mm. I know I do. And I know a lot of my, my colleagues do as well, but mentally it, it is, you know, if it's a five hour round, it is a five hour mental grind because we're not just carrying the bag, which takes physical energy. We are basically acting as a sports psychologist to our player, sometimes nutritionist, uh, we got to provide the water and then certainly we're figuring out the wind and we're getting the distances and we're giving, you know, reads and we're telling the crowd to stay still. So, uh, it doesn't seem like there's that much going on, but I literally feel like I don't have more than two seconds off over a five hour round. Sometimes I struggle to even just walk on the other side of the tee to get fill, you know, another bottle of water without getting 20 steps behind because there's so much going on. Uh, even before and after he hits, you know, like a tee shot. So it, it's, it's a mental grind for five hours for sure. Tim, welcome to the show. Um, very curious, you know, you were a college coach for a long time and you were Pac-12 coach of the year in 2014, 2015. And you were part of John Rahm's, you know, I mean, he was already a great player, but really helping him get to the next level. So young John Rahm, kind of coaching him and while you're not Phil's coach, um, but you've come to be with him at the later part of his career and maybe talk about, you know, working with young kids and then, you know, working with somebody who's very, who's your brother, but he's much older. So I, I think my coaching helped give me an advantage as it related to Phil, because as a coach, if you're taking five players to a college tournament, which is what you do, you have five different personalities. We have, you may have up to five different styles of play. And as a coach, you know, the, the great coaches out there know how to do this. And I'm not saying I was great at it, but I tried is what can I say to each player that's going to trigger them in a positive way? Some guys you had to nurture other guys. You could say, Hey, come on, let's go. What, what the hell's going on? You know, you're four over, get it back to even I'm, you know, I'm relying on you. Some guys could handle that pressure. Other guys couldn't. Other guys didn't want to know how the team was doing. Other guys did. Okay, does Phil want to know uh, how he stands with six holes to go in this tournament, or does he not want to know how he stands? What can I say to trigger him to make sure we hit a, a good shot, to commit to a good shot? And so I wouldn't say I was good at it the first year, but after being around Phil long enough, I now feel like I know what I can say, what I should say, to get the response out of him that I want or I need to produce the shot that we need to hit, you know, for the very next shot. And I've got multiple examples from basically any of his, of his victories. So. Yeah. And that, and that takes time. And even you being his brother, you knowing his game, you knowing his demeanor, it's it still, it takes time. Right. And just because you're close to him doesn't mean you're helping him. Right. Exactly. And that, exactly. It, being yeah. his brother and playing a casual round of golf, does nothing to prepare me for how I can help him when it's the 70th hole of a major championship or any tournament, you know, I have to be, you know, in the grindstone with him, so to speak. And that took time. And, you know, I'm sure even bones, you know, obviously bones is with him for such a long time. I'm sure it took bones a couple of years as well to figure out what to say, how to say it, when to say it. Um, and oh. I think 
all, I think all caddies that have been with their players for a while, you know, that's, that's probably something they'd agree with. And that's something we wanted to ask. And we can just talk about it right now. You know, Bones was there forever. I mean, they were one of the longest going pairs. 25 in, years, right? Yeah. Yeah. And most successful, obviously. So you come in in 2017 and what were those initial conversations like? What were some of those challenges, right? But maybe some of those really cool, fun parts too. Well, the initial, the initial conversations were very simple. It was, I've got you at 184 to the pin and 169 to the front. And then I just handed him the golf bag and he picked a club and I stepped aside because at that time I didn't know how far his clubs went. You know, I, I had an idea, but not specifically. And, you know, he knew. And so I, it was honestly, it was the easiest caddying job in the world because I just carried the bag and gave him a number. And from there, he figured it out. He figured out the wind and how far to hit it. And then I started getting being more involved as he brought me in to talk more about the shots. Cause he would say, Hey, what do you think it is? And I said, well, I think it's a, you know, a cut seven or a seven minus three yards or whatever it is. So then we started having a little bit of success with that and he started trusting me more. Then it started to green reading as well, you know, Hey, come on in for this putt. You know, what do you think? And as I started giving him more and more good reads, all of a sudden he's relying on me more and more and more for reads. So my job now is quite a bit more intense or certainly involved because I feel like like I'm helping with every shot, which is great uh, because it also helps when we're on the same page as to exactly the shot we need to hit and reading a lot of greens, helping with the wind, uh, so those earlier conversations were easy. Now they're a lot more involved and, and, you know, for whatever reason, we're on the same page a lot, probably 70 to 75% of the time, but the week of the PGA, I think we were on the same page about 98% of the time. I mean, we were almost wow. always thinking of the exact same shot, which helped give him confidence because he knew, Hey, if we both agree on this, then this should be right. Let's just hit it. Is there anything you wish you knew when you started catting? that you know now, or is it more of the stuff you just mentioned, like, you know, how the distance of different types of shots and tendencies, or what do you wish you knew back in 2017? I actually, so I'm actually going to reverse it. I think some of the things that I've learned from Phil uh, over the last four years would have been very helpful when I was a college coach. Mm. And just two quick examples. One would be how the actual lie in the fairway can actually reflect how far the ball is going to go. In my mind, when I was coaching, and I don't know why I never thought about this, but if the ball was in the fairway, you're going to make clean contact. The ball is going to go your max number. Well, if it's into the grain, that's a whole nother factor that it's going to go shorter. Or if it's mm. just sitting down in the fairway, I still feel like you're going to make clean contact, but it still could take three or five yards off of your distance. Not something that registered in my mind. And then the other thing would be, the system that we use right now with the launch monitors that we have uh, have allowed me to become much better at determining how much wind is actually going to affect the ball. You know, is it a 10 yard wind or is it a 15 yard wind or a 20 yard wind based on a trajectory? Um, and we've been able to, that was, an, I think another factor for us a couple of weeks ago was we were very clued into how much that wind was going to affect shots. And so I, I think if I knew some of that back when I was coaching at Arizona state, it could have helped those players be a little bit more prepared for mm -hmm. tournaments then, as well as when they turn professional. And just for the amateurs out there, Tim, cause you're right. I mean, a lot of golf is just guesswork and feels mm -hmm. right. And 
look like as an amateur when i went to bannon dunes for the first time and it's blowing 35 and i hit a high ball flight looking back i was just taking one less club and hitting hard which just ballooned it even more where now i understand more about flighting and taking two clubs and little you know people call them like chip fives or whatever they want to call them does is that just kind of what that's like for a tour caddy too as as you st- the longer you are with a player um the better feel you get for that based on how intense the wind in or wind is or is there a more systematic approach to it i don't know if there's a more systematic approach i think it is player by player there's going to be certain guys you know jason day has a very high ball flight uh phil could hit it high he could hit it low but the more i'm with phil the more i know okay i know exactly how far a left to right low shots going to get affected by the wind and vice versa. I know a high cut's going to get affected so much more. And we've been able to, you know, really key in on those. And you're right. If you just take, if it's a 15 yard win and you just take one club more and you swing hard, you're going to compress the ball even more, create more spin, launch it higher in the air, which gets affected by the spin even more. You're almost going to come up even more short, yeah. you know, than if you just try to hit a three quarter shot. So you do want, I mean, at times there was like a three club wind, I would say for us, even at Kiowa. I mean, I can remember one time we had, I don't, I don't remember the hole, but we had 106 yards and we hit our three quarter nine iron, which usually goes 145. Um, our full nine iron goes 155. And it was, you know, the perfect, perfect number instead of just hitting a sand wedge. So um, I think the more I'm with Phil, the more I know him. And I think that would hold true for every caddy and player relationships so guys that are just starting out with players it might be their second or third week they're probably not getting too involved with that yet because they just don't quite know their player so how can they confidently tell their player hey this is a 15 yard win but tim when you know phil is so known for his creativity and we've watched him be one of the greatest players of our generation and of all time do you feel like you need to push him to be creative sometimes when he's not playing well no, no, like no, no. He, no, no, no. It's, it's always there. It's always it, there. <laughs> the creativity, the aggressiveness is always there. Whether we're in the hunt on a Saturday or Sunday, or if we're trying to make a cut on a Friday or even a Thursday, the creativity and the aggressiveness, you call it creativity. I can look at it and just say aggressiveness because I can see a defensive shot and I can see an aggressive shot and I can pretty much know this is the one he's going to take. You know, there's not much, there's no real, you know, conservativeness to fill although at the pga he did show a couple couple times to me that i was actually thinking of a more aggressive play he took the conservative <laughs> route i'm like hmm, interesting let's let's see how it plays out yeah. is that is that a challenge for a player like phil i know tigers talked about it over the years of you have so many options mm-hmm. on every shot and so being committed it's hard enough to pick a yardage a flight uh a number landing area mm-hmm. let alone all the different shots you have at your disposal especially around the greens is that a challenge for you guys sometimes to commit because of the arsenal and the creativity it it can it can be a challenge i i feel like there's never really more than two or three options so you can at least narrow it down to these two or three this is how we're going to get the ball close sure now of those two or three what's the easiest way to get the ball close we don't always choose the easiest method because sometimes you just feel a shot. You just, Hey, I know that I'm going to hit this right. Even though it's a tougher shot, I know I can pull it off. 
And at that point, as a caddy, you got to let your player hit that shot because he's already made his decision. So if he's already made his decision, what's the point in me in changing his decision or creating doubt in his mind? Mm. Unless it's a thing where, hey, you know, I'm 295 yards to the front edge of the green and it's all carryover water and I'm going to try to hit a four iron. Okay, obviously that's a stupid, stupid play, so that's never going to come up. But if a player can pull off that shot even – let's say 20% of the time, and he's already made that decision that that's what he's going to do. The worst thing I can do is create doubt in his mind before he hits that shot. Yeah. yeah. So Tim, let's, let's talk to PGA. You know, you, you, let's talk, talk about that, the week of preparation going into it. I'm um, Phil is a, a creature of habit. Uh, and I think, you know, obsessed with routines. Um, was there anything different about the routine going in or was there a tweak or was it just, we do what we do. I like this golf course and we're, we're, we're feeling good. I also want to see like, as a caddy, what's your mm-hmm. week look like going in, especially if Phil asks you to do anything unique. Yeah. So throughout history, I would say Phil and tiger did a very good job of they, because they knew they're in the tournament, they would go, to the tournament site two, three or four weeks in advance and spend a day or two and do a lot of their preparation then because there were no fans, they could get a lot of work done. And then tournament week would be more of just, Hey, let's go play nine holes. Let's stay nice and casual. And this year we did not go to Kiowa Island before the tournament. We got there Saturday, uh, the Saturday before, and just basically the plan was to play nine holes every day. So we would, play each each nine twice and be prepared for the tournament from my standpoint there wasn't anything different from a preparation standpoint uh i would say at the u.s open where there's going to be more treacherous rough there may be a little bit more preparation that i need to do which is okay if we hit it in the left rough here on hole four what's going to be our best way to make you know par do we want to try to chase it as far towards the green as we can or do we just lay up to a number things like that but my preparation is never really different than than a regular pga tour event and as it related to phil uh you know we in general majors are more stressful i think the better players who at they're at the point in their career where the majors is how they're going to be remembered they're more important obviously so they put a little more stress on themselves and for whatever reason that week I did not feel like Phil felt any pressure felt any stress it felt in my mind that it was just another golf tournament and he was very laid back relaxed and I knew something like special was was happening to his focus I I I won't I wouldn't say that hey Tuesday I'm like hey we're gonna win the PGA championship I didn't I didn't go to that extent but I knew that something is triggered in him mentally that he is ready to play and he's very focused and ready to put his best, you know, best effort forward on this week. And Tim, I, I hate to go backwards for a second, but before we dive too much into the PGA, I'm so fascinated by this. I've been thinking about it all day. I'm very curious about the champions tour wins for a second. Mm -hmm. Obviously it's a different tour, but mentally that had to have been fun to go in to a new arena as the young guy and just dominate. And I'm curious if you think you would have had the success at the PGA if it wasn't for 
the Champions Tour wins. Did that give you guys a little bit of a boost in confidence, even though that hadn't shown up yet uh, for four rounds on the PGA Tour? I think it was a boost. And I think at any level, winning is winning. Yeah. Winning breeds winning. And so when I was even coaching, I would tell high school kids, hey, if you can't afford to go play a national tournament, just go dominate your local events because then they're going to come out possibly thinking that they're better than they are, but then playing at a level higher than what they probably should play. But winning breeds winning. And so by winning, I think that gave them more confidence. It hadn't, like you're saying, it had not translated into success on the PGA Tour. But over the last four months, like Phil and I kept saying to each other, like, bro, you're, you're playing very well. The results aren't showing it yet, but just, you know, stay patient, keep faith in the process. You're doing the right things. You know, and there were a lot of times where we did, you know, three or four things really, really good and one thing bad in the round and, and that cost us to miss the cut or whatever. But we saw some, some brilliance his first round at Charlotte and you could see the confidence brewing a little bit. And as it was even discussed on like Twitter from my sister, after Charlotte, we had a family dinner, just a little cookout. And Phil basically looked at my sister and my parents and said, I don't know when, but I'm going to win again soon because I am playing really well. And sure enough, it was the very next, you know, tournament. Obviously, you know, I think the telecast talked a lot about this. Phil talked a lot about this. Uh, I loved hearing it, especially Sermon I did, because we're all about the mental game and I coach about stress management and I've coached mindfulness. And so when you hear Phil talk about focus, you know, I think that's been talked about a lot. The one thing I don't think that's been talked about enough is Phil actually practiced focus. So I forget where, um, but he talked about playing 36 to 45 holes where he would practice staying focused for every hole, every shot, 36 to 45 holes. And then by the time he got to 18 in competition, it's almost like a runner, you know, running longer than the race. Um, so that by the yeah. time you get to the race, it feels easy. How involved are you with this practice? And can you talk about that a little bit of how much you think that's helped him? So I, I'm a firm believer that it has helped. I would not be able to take any credit to say that I've helped with that. Cause when we're at home, uh, we don't really do much work-related stuff. So, you know, yeah. he, he goes out and plays and, and all that stuff. And I stay at the house and I work out and now I'm changing diapers and hanging out with our kid. But, uh, you know, he was actually s struggling with focus for a few years. And so he's he's been very active to try to find ways to be able to focus better. And so that was one of the things that he started doing. And, um, you know, every, whether you want to call them sports psychologists or just psychologists or, and everybody has their own opinions on how to stay focused and what you need to do. You know, my belief is that you're going to be out there for five hours. It's easy to focus for 20 or 30 seconds when it's your turn to hit, but what are you going to do while you're walking to your ball? You don't even know what your lie is like yet. You don't know your distance. So my attitude is why waste energy thinking about it? Let's talk about other things. And that's one of the things that I try to do is, when I catch my brother trying to talk about the shot, I'll say, look, let's worry about that when we get there. Let's, you know, did you see how the Suns did last night? You know, they beat the Lakers by 30, whatever it is, get his mind off of golf until we get to the shot or get to the ball. And then we can start focusing for that 30 to 60 seconds that we need. And then let's get our mind off of golf again. 
Because if you focus for five straight hours coming down that 18th hole, I don't think we're going to be mentally fresh. Tim, we're kind of talking about what are the signs that were leading up to <laughs> the success that you guys had at Keelan, whether it was those wins at the senior, you know, the senior tour, those were positives. You know, Phil's worked on his speed. He's worked on his focus, his diet, all these things. But something I was thinking about, Tim, and I'm curious to get your thoughts, is Phil became a really good Lynx player last decade. And I think about the Open Championship where he, you know, struggled for a lot of years. And then 2011, he finished second. 2013, he wins. If Stenson doesn't do something unthinkable, he, he wins again in 16. And he finishes, high finishes in 2018, 2019, I think a couple top 25s. Then so come to Kiowa, and it's in a lot of ways it's links in America. And did that have any like and did he just he just feels good about this style of golf? Did that have anything to do with anything? I you know, it's actually not something we ever really talked about. I mean, I know he liked the golf course going into it, and it was just sort of a feeling that, Hey, we know we're playing well. I've got this two that I can hit. Well, I've got this driver that I can get in play. Let's figure out how to get those in play. We've got a one iron that we can. So we knew that we were going to hit enough fairways to be in contention. It was a matter of doing all the other things well and staying patient. And, and I think that was the, actually the biggest difference was him staying patient, knowing that it's a major championship, 72 holes. If I get off to a bad start, it's okay you know, because there's plenty of opportunities to, to gain shots on the field and how are we going to do that? And so by staying patient, you know, we were able to, um, well, obviously win, but we were able to stay in the hunt for a long time, making sure that come Sunday we had, we had a shot to win. Sure. Yeah. I find it so interesting, Tim, that these are things that people talk about a lot. And we've said this before on the show, they're cliches in a way. And so I don't think people hear them enough. I don't think people put it into practice enough. And you have amateurs out there getting pissed at themselves for making a bogey when they don't realize that as long as they stay in it mentally, they might make a couple un unexpected birdies coming in. I mean, I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, Phil made five bogeys on on the last round and on paper you might say i can't believe i made five bogeys with a chance to win but yeah. guess what he won and it's not and you hear spieth talk a lot about this spieth doesn't talk about being perfect spieth talks about his fight to win a major in the masters and whatever right. and how much is that because you've coached you know elite you, now with phil obviously as his caddy but you've coached elite players with rom and others how much of a differentiator is patience to the guys on the PGA Tour versus, you know, the other best players around the world that maybe haven't reached that level? Yeah, it, it's very important. I think when you say patience, people can look at that in multiple ways. The way I look at it is because you make a bogey, that doesn't mean the next hole you have to be more aggressive than you should be and attack a pin with a five iron. And all of a sudden you short side yourself and you turn that into a bogey or a double. Cause now what you've done is you've compounded your mistake from the whole prior, right? So patience in my mind is sort of allowing things to happen in the positive for you. So you make a bogey on number one, number two, 
let's get it in the fat side of the green. Let's give ourselves a 20 or 30 foot putt. Let's see if it can drop. And if not, we've sort of weathered the storm and then let's be aggressive on the next hole or whatever it is. You know, certainly if you have a sand wedge in your hand, you're going to go for a pin, but if you're 200 yards out, you don't need to be going for that pin and compound the mistake. And I want to give credit to Howard Twitty. Howard Twitty uh, went to Arizona State, played the tour for a long time. And he told me once, he said, you know, there's multiple ways to shoot 69. You want to shoot three under? There's multiple ways to do it. And I said, right. Now, just explain. He said, well, you can make 15 pars and three birdies. I said, yeah. Because you can make five birdies and, and two bogeys, right? I said, yeah. He said, well, here's the problem with the five birdies and two bogeys. If you make two bogeys, you now have to make five birdies over 16 holes because you've already made two bogeys. Whereas if you only have to make three birdies over 18 holes, that's a lot easier to do. And I'm like, that actually, to me, that resonated. So what it meant to me was as it relates to patience or just more conservative play, if I could just find ways to hit more greens, I'm going to two putt. I'm going to get lucky and make one or two. And I have par fives that if I can eliminate one bogey per round or even two bogeys over a tournament, I'm saving a lot of shots over the course of the year. And so that was something that resonated to me was you're not always rewarded for playing more aggressively. Sometimes you could be, but you could also be penalized because of short sign yourself. And so, you know, if we can stay patient, hit more greens, and just take our opportunities when they come, you know, with par fives or short par fives, let's do that. Well, that's what I was, that's what I was going to say is just taking advantage of the par fives, right? Prepping, thinking that way, you know, knowing that you've got those opportunities and really just keeping yourself in the game, you know, on those treacherous par fours and par threes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you know, exactly right. I mean, you have par fours, you know, in major championships that are over 500 yards and, you rarely have one that's 330 or 340. We did have that drivable one, what is it, number three mm-hmm. at the PGA. But in general, I mean, and that course was very long, what, 7,800 yards? So very few of them were short. So what can we do to just get it on the green and give ourselves, you know, a chance at birdie? And then, hey, we know we have par five. We're going to have a short, you know, shorter hole here and there. And we'll, we'll take advantage there. And it's going to be no different at the U.S. Open. I mean, it's going to be playing very long. and and treacherous from the rough. So how do we hit more greens and just try to put our way to a victory? Yeah. I think another thing, Tim, that makes me think of that pros do really well, that amateurs and, and even, you know, pros on maybe the corn fairy don't do well enough is I noticed, I think it was the really long par three. Was that 17, 16? Uh, There's a couple of them, 17 and 14, 17. I think it was, um, where I remember watching uh, Phil said the mic picked it up. Wow. Didn't expect that hit it exactly where we wanted to. Right. And that's a very process driven. uh, What can I control good attitude? Mm -hmm. Right. Because he could have gotten frustrated that he hit a great shot and it went in the bunker. And now he's got a tough bunker with water with going away from him and water on the other side. That's a nervy shot with one hole to play um, with the potential to make history. And he basically just said, I did what I was trying to do. It just went longer than I thought it would. Right. And I think instead of he he didn't get down on himself and look, 
Phil over the years has been as erratic with the driver as anyone. And I think he's really good. He just probably doesn't get enough praise at how he's a, how he's able to bounce back and just go hit the next one. I'm sure his short game, one of the best short games ever, really helps with that. But um, I, I think that's something that maybe he doesn't get enough credit for. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, you look at how many times he has had to bounce back from six second place finishes in the U.S. Open and mm-hmm. you know uh, situations like that. But that's what makes the great players great is – they're so focused on winning that they're able to forget about that and put it in the past and, and refocus on the next event and, and, and trying to win. And I think that's what the best players in the world do is their focus is on winning. And when they finish third, fourth, or fifth, yes, financially, they've had a good week and it looks good to finish top five or top 10, but in their mind, they didn't do everything well enough to win. And so what am, what am I going to work on? to give myself the chance to win. And there's a couple different types of players on the tour. You have those players. And then you have the other guys that are, that are very comfortable with making a good living and, you know, having a, being in the top 125 every year and securing their card. But that's what separates, in my opinion, the great, great players and the other tour players that are really good players, but they don't have the same drive as those elite, elite players have. Well, and, and that's what I'd, yeah, I'd love to dig in a little but more, Tim. So I grew up with a family of golfers. We grew up playing. We all played Division One. And obviously, you come from one of the famous families. Uh, and you guys all grew up playing and being together. And those were really fun, awesome memories to look back on for me. And I'm sure they are for you. But Phil is such a hard worker. And what you know, maybe talk about growing up. What the you know, you all were working hard together and pushing each other. I'm talk about then and, and talk about now because what he does with you know, his diet and his, his fitness and all his speed work. I mean, at his age, and you guys just won the PGA. Like, what do, what do we not know? Because we know he's a hard worker, but curious to just, for somebody who's been around him for so long. I don't think there's anything you don't know. I think he's a very open person, as you can tell on like Instagram and Twitter and stuff oh, like yeah. that. <laughs> I think the key is that the, the, the desire to win has always been there i mean from high school until today i don't think that desire to win has changed you know there may be a time where you get down on yourself wing foot us open you know that's a tough one to come back from but these elite players including phil all they want to do is win that's that's sort of how they create a legacy and so if i want to win what am i going to do what am i willing to sacrifice and it's something i used to say to my players in college too like if we want to win, we have to sacrifice something. So is it our social life or whatever? And Phil Basie has sacrificed time to make sure that he can succeed. And so that means workouts, nutrition, you know, extra time at the golf course, putting, all that stuff. And he's made a commitment to doing that. And his, again, his desire to win is no different now than it was in high school trying to play on the AJGA circuit. What was that balance to Tim? Because Look, Matt comes from a, like he said, four boys. They all played college golf. They've caddied for each other. I've caddied for our mutual best friend who was a top player in Missouri where I grew up. And um, it's a tough balance, right? Like, I don't know how I would do if my older brother was my boss. Because I can be really honest, bluntly honest with him. I'm going to tell him 
when he needs to get his ass into gear. But at the same time, you know, there may be times where he doesn't want to hear it from me. And there might be mm -hmm. tension. Look, my mom told us as kids, we weren't allowed to play sports against each other because we'd always get in a fight when we would play sports against each other. Like most brothers did. That stuff is still under the surface. Like that stuff's there. So how is that as a caddy that's his brother? Is you that know, come up sometimes? Our relationship has been very interesting because there's seven, there's a seven year gap. Got and it. so he, when I was growing up, he was always that much bigger than me. And he was the older brother that I looked up to that we didn't really clash. We never Got clash. It. In fact, I mean, we've never had an argument. We've never thrown a punch at each other, anything like that. And so there's always this mutual respect that I had for him, but he also had for me once I became an adult that we've had this great relationship forever. And as it relates to me now working for him, you know, I try to make it clear to him that yes i know he's the boss and so what he wants to do is what's going to happen and i don't mean shots i mean when we're going to leave for a tournament when we're going to practice you know practice rounds pro ends all that stuff hey he's the boss but he's made it very clear to me that it's a partnership and that he trusts the opinions i have and so he'll ask me you know you know uh even i think it was the pga even um PGA on, I think it was Monday. We, we, did, we showed up to the course later. We literally practiced for like four hours and it was like five o'clock at night. And he's like, well, should we go play nine? I'm like, well, what's the point of playing nine? We've already practiced four hours. We had a long day yesterday. We're going to be out in the morning. You know, let's just, I said, maybe what we do is let's go play 18 tomorrow instead of nine. We'll get the same amount of holes in practice. We'll come out fresh. And he thought about it for like 20 seconds. He's like, you know what? I love that idea. We'll just come out early and do that. So it is a partnership. He listens to me, which is great. But I also know that he is the boss in that relationship as it relates to us, you know, at tournaments. And so he gets to make the calls. And because of that, again, we've still, even me working for him for four and a half years, never had any sort of issue or argument outside of, you know, what shot we should hit. And even then, He's the boss, and when he makes a decision, he gets to commit to it, and, and I'm going to be on board. Well, and, and, and Tim, you know, Phil, you got the, the equipment strategy for Kiowa clearly worked. The two wood, the four wood, the one iron that was in play. Um, sometimes that can be a lot to track with Phil because he's always trying different things. You kind of have to pivot to, to his game that week with these, with these shots and these clubs. But talk about why, how that's, this strategy came to be for Kiowa and what, just why it works so well. So the drivers and two-wood setup has had been in play for us for, I think, since about October. And so, you know, that wasn't anything new. The real question is, what's going to be better, a one-iron or four-wood or slash five-wood? And that's a common conversation that we'll have between tournaments is what's going to be best but it was more in the preparation of what's going to be best for this hole. This hole, is it going to be a driver off the tee? Is it going to be a two wood or is it going to be the one iron? You know, and then even, even like on the par five, like number two, okay, what's our best way to hit it in the fairway. Okay. It's two wood from two wood. What are we going to have left? Okay. Well, it might be the one iron. It could be a four wood, you know, but we decided that there were going to be enough possibilities off the tee that the one iron would, would make more sense. And the one iron basically penetrates, you know, has a more penetrating flight. 
which was going to be better because of the wind projections for that week. Now, fast forward to Sunday, and literally 20 minutes before our round, I go to clean the one iron, and I realize there's about an inch and a half crack on the face. And so we ran, you know, I ran back to the car and I grabbed the four wood, which ended up not being a bad thing at all because it was a four wood he's very comfortable with. We had played with it before. We just hadn't touched it since Tuesday because we knew we were going to go with the, the one iron. But that was one of the nice things about Phil that week was I think if it was a different week, it may have phased him that, you know, hey, we got to switch clubs right before the round. But he's like, just say, run, get the four wood. It's in the, you know, the back of the car and we'll be good to go. And it was as simple as that. So, um, you know, the game plan absolutely worked that week. And it was nice to come to 18 with a lead where we could say, okay, you know, how can we navigate this hole? To go back to what you were saying about hole 17, we hit the exact shot we wanted. That was probably one of the 2% of, of the shots during the week that we didn't agree on. I wanted him to hit the six iron because I thought it was going to be in that collection area where Brooks was. He was thinking because of adrenaline and the wind that seven iron, seven iron could land in the middle of the green and, and roll out. I was trying to take water completely out of play as long as he didn't pull it towards the pin. It just took an awful bounce. And so as we walked to the ball, I just reminded him, hey, with where we are right now, with three shot lead, we're absolutely fine. We have to just make a bogey. So let's not be too aggressive with this chip shot, and, you know, because we, we didn't even know the lie yet until we got to the ball. So yeah. let's make sure that bogeys are the worst we make. And once I said that, it seemed like he was like, okay, you're right. Because he was, he was a little irritated as we were walking off the tee because, hey, he hits a great shot and all of a sudden now it's in the high grass. And so I had to remind him that based on the situation, we're still fine. You know, let's just make sure we don't compound like we thought, compound that tee shot into another mistake and make it worse than it is. And so, you know, we, we did what we needed to do that, that green for whatever reason, I don't know if it's different grass or newly sodded, that green was very bumpy on Sunday. So even that three footer, I know I was, I was probably more nervous than, than he was, but it was, it was definitely bumpy. Well, I think that's a theme, right, Tim? I mean, so, I mean, our, our minds play tricks on us. So mm -hmm. it's so easy to have the, oh shit, moments or maybe this just isn't in the cards you know i mean if you compound a, the, the one iron cracking mm -hmm. mixed with making bogeys early the back and forth the lead changes not committing early mixed with those you know unexpected misses late when you hit it perfect it'd be so easy yeah. to just say maybe this isn't in the cards but i think you know not to be too cliche or meta about it, but that that's like what meditation teaches you. It's about coming back. It's about acknowledging your reality and coming back and doing your best with what's in front of you. And if you think about all those challenges that you guys went through on Sunday, what a perfect example of just coming back and resetting over and over again. Absolutely. You know, he was more present than ever and and sort of to go to what you're talking about he he didn't really allow himself on sunday that much to start thinking about the next hole or where am i going to make the next birdie he does that quite a bit which i think a lot of players do and i would say he probably did that earlier in the week as well but on sunday everything was about the next shot 
the next shot, you know, what are we doing right now? And so he didn't allow himself to dwell on the past or think about the future. And we, we stuck in the present, which I think became very critical uh, coming down the stretch. Well, and you, Phil talked about it a lot. It was the sixth hole, right? And I think you said to him, Phil, if we want to win this thing, we're yeah. going to have to make committed golf swings. And Tim, you're a great player. You're a great coach. I mean, more often than not, when you're not playing well, you're not committed to what you're doing, right? Or something. So we hear it a lot, but something, something he's heard it before from you, but something clicked right there, right? It was just a pull. I'm going to pull you aside a moment and reset. Phil, you're too good to do. <laughs> you're, you're, you're in a great position, but yeah. we got to get back to your plan. Yeah. You know, and I think it goes back to just being his caddy, being with him enough that I've learned when I need to say something what, or when he's already in control and I don't need to say anything. And I just felt like, you know, I'd heard him say it three or four times. Oh, I didn't trust it or that was uncommitted. And I hadn't heard that all week. And he, you know, there was another two shot swing where he had just made bogey and, and Brooks had, had just made it three footer for birdie on six. And I just felt like, okay, this is the time I need to say something. And so I just stopped him on the edge of the green and just said, yeah, hey, if, if you want to win this tournament, you have to commit to your swing and let's see what happens. I said, you're playing great. Let's just keep doing it. And, you know, it, it did at least trigger that, hey, let's make committed swings because you're always better off. You're, you're going to be better off making a committed swing to a bad target, right? Because you're at least making a good swing. Um, if you make an uncommitted swing, who knows where the ball is going to go, but if you make a good committed swing, you have a better chance of that miss. If there is a miss to be on a much tighter dispersion than an uncommitted swing. And that's what I was trying to get him to focus on. And, um, you know, luckily it worked for us. So Tim Cermak made fun of me for, I was telling him before you joined that I was comparing myself to Phil because (laughs) I've always thought and wondered if I should play a two wood because Phil and I both hit the driver, you know, pretty erratic. He didn't at the PGA, obviously, but uh, I'm famous for kind of a wild driver and I hit my three wood awesome. And um, so is the two wood just a distance gapping thing or is there something more to a two wood versus a three wood? Uh, It's just more of a distance thing because with the two wood, we know that the ball's still going to get out there far enough. Whereas with three wood, yes, it'll get out there, but maybe it's too much of a loss of distance where we don't want to hit it. So by having the two wood, we don't feel like we're losing much. If we hit two wood versus driver, we're going to gain the amount of fairways we're going to hit. We're going to lose maybe 15 or 20 yards. But if we hit, if it's a three wood in the bag, instead, we could be losing, let's say 40 yards. And that's a big difference. So even if it's just from a a mental psyche standpoint, you know, we feel very comfortable in giving up 10, 15, 20 yards to hit two wood to make sure it gets in play. And um, I do need to say though, like he's actually been hitting driver very well over the last few months in general. It wasn't just the PGA statistically, it might not be a, a lot better, but you were saying Phil's erratic. So let's say erratic means you miss fairways by 20 or 30 yards we've missed a ton of fairways over the last few months by a yard or two, or even mm. in the first cut, which doesn't count. So statistically there may not be a huge improvement, but we're 95% of the time playing within the tree lines, you know, so fairway and rough, which has also been a big difference for us. 
Is that just from his plane work, getting more on plane, or what do you attribute his better accuracy for? From yeah, swinging better, being more on plane, and, and the work that he and Andrew Getson have been doing. So, um, you know, Andrew Getson has, has been able to get Phil's swing to exactly where he wants it, which is great. And, and by doing so, that has allowed the the misses to be much tighter. Yeah. So obviously, it was a record. It was a historical performance from Phil to win it at age 50. But, you know, Patrick Harrington was another good story of the week. You know, he former PGH champ. We know all the great, that great run he had in the late 2000s. And he said something, it was a longer quote, but one of the things he said was, as you gain experience, you lose innocence. And he said that one of his, one of his pressers at the PGA, because, you know, Padraig's had his, all that success and he had some downtimes there. And I thought that was a very interesting quote, you know, and with Phil, Phil hangs around a lot with the younger players. He, he's working on his speed. He's, he's, he's definitely the modern golfer from, from a past, from a past generation. Do you find that quote interesting is trying to, sometimes you've got to look to that childlike young fearless player that was once in you that maybe sometimes creeps out and you, you got to pull that back. Well, I, I think the important part is to, know who your competition is and there's always going to be new and and younger competition as you get later in your career so if phil has the opportunity to play with those guys the john roms the xander shoffley's like to see okay what is it about their game that they do better than me what am i missing because that's the guys that are coming up so if you take away the guy like padre who's closer to phil's age and you have phil looking at the younger crowd i think that's been great for Phil but I also think that that was part of why he started chasing distance a few years ago was all of these guys are hitting the ball further and further and further and you look at the Cameron Champs and the Tony Finau's and Rom bombs it you know and and Xander gets the ball out there it was sort of like oh crap I need to hit the ball further if I'm going to continue to contend so he was able to get that extra distance we were still erratic let's say but by toning it down just a little bit over the last 18 months we're still hitting the ball plenty far. We're hitting more fairways. Uh, I think that's been, I think that's been a key is that he can see what those guys do well. And, you know, I still do it just to myself. Like I like playing with younger people to see, you know, see their games and try to figure out where their career is going to go. You know, so a lot of guys that are just turning pro on the mini tours and things like that, you know, what do they do well? And, Okay, so you then put it to me, if I ever want to play a high amateur level when I turn 50, or do I even think about the Champions Tour myself, what am I going to have to be able to do in my golf game to succeed? So even though he's won six major championships, John Rahm has won none, John can learn plenty from Phil, but Phil can still learn plenty from John Rahm. Another theme from the PGA is keeping the outside noise on the outside. And there may not be any more noise going into a U.S. Open for Phil than this one. Um, hometown, off the PGA. I'm curious kind of what, as his caddy and his partner, what mentality you guys might take differently to this U.S. Open. Because, look, you could add a lot more pressure or you could kind of be playing free because you just made history. And yes, mm-hmm. I'm sure he wants to get the career Grand Slam as much as anything. It's yeah. basically the only thing he hasn't accomplished in his career. But how do you go into 
the the U.S. Open at Tory without that adding unnecessary pressure and keep doing what you guys are doing? You know, he's had that unnecessary pressure for multiple reasons. You know, at one point it was the best player to have never won a major. Then it was for not being able to win the U.S. Open and, and complete the Grand Slam. And, and at one point it was for not being able to win the British Open. Somehow he's able to block most of that out. And that's going to be, I think, the same attitude we're going to try to take is I think it's going to be critical for us this year to have a good game plan and strategy by Monday or Tuesday of, the, of tournament week. He and I both have played there tons of times. We know the course. So what's going to be the strategy? We got to stick to that strategy. And then we have to stay present and focused like we did at the PGA. And if we do that, then I think we have a chance. Can we say we're going to win? Absolutely not. Because anytime you win a major championship, you get some sort of luck. Unless you're Tiger Woods when he won the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach. That was just crazy. But you need a little bit of luck here and there. And so can we get that luck come Saturday or Sunday that we need? Well, the important thing is going to be in, to be in contention come the weekend. And then from there, if you're in contention, you've narrowed it down to a 36-hole tournament. Now let's just go beat everybody else that's in contention for those 36 holes. So to stay present and focused will be very important. And, and besides that, you know, we don't control what the media says. We don't control what, what people, you know, say on, on social media. We can only focus on what we want to do and what we need to do, which again is to be in contention come weekend time. And then from there, we'll just see what happens. I mean, Tim, what, what a spot you guys are in. You just beat the best field in golf. Right. And I think what you've talked about with us today is Phil never lost that belief, that desire, but, but times, you know, there was ebbs and flows and what a rebirth and who says you can't go do it again and again. Yeah. I mean, he's already, he proved it just two weeks ago that he can do it. And so why can't we do it again? That's, that's a great point. And that's certainly the attitude we're going to, you know, have, you're going to have hundred and some odd other players that are going to go in there with the same attitude, which is, Hey, it's my turn this week. Yeah. You know, it's my time to shine. And you've had players that have had success at Torrey Pines. So who knows? We can't control what they do. We can only control what, what we can do and, and the shots we're going to hit. And again, if we can hit the shots we need, we can stay present. We can stay focused. If we have a chance come Saturday, then it turns into a 36 old tournament. Any, can you, can you share maybe any potential, interesting equipment decisions we might make for Tori or, some, or something don't know that yet because we got to go play some practice rounds and figure it out but you know yeah. I would say out of the rough in a U.S. Open a one iron is not going to be very beneficial so if we don't see a lot of one irons off the tee I would expect a forward in play so that we can basically chop the forward from the rough back into play but again until we play our practice rounds who knows maybe an extra wedge we'll see right it's always possible with Phil. You never know. He has won majors with zero drivers in the bag. That's true. One driver in the bag and two drivers. Two drivers. In the bag. Yeah. Oh, but it's, what putting grip? I mean, he's a, he goes back and forth. It was unbelievable what he did on, uh, on 17 or on, uh, uh yeah, was it right. so, yeah. 17 on Sunday. 17. Yeah. He yeah, switched I mean, back. It sort of begs the question that they used to say, what will Phil do next? Right. <laughs> so Tim, one last question for you, maybe the most important question of the day. I think a lot of people are curious. Actually, probably nobody's curious, but we're going to ask anyways. 
Do big calves run in the family or is Phil the only one? Uh, I would probably say they're genetic because I think I've got decent calves and my sister's probably got decent calves as well. So I'm trying to think it's got to be from my dad then because my dad has pretty defined calves as well. Okay. There you go. Tim Mickelson, great calves. People are going to be watching and at Tory now, thanks to this. And I'll be wearing I'll be wearing shorts all week. Phil's got to wear pants. So, <laughs> all right. Well, um, Tim, this was great. In case you guys want to follow Tim, I think probably the best place to follow you, Tim, is on Instagram at Tim Mick twenty nine. I would say that's correct. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, Tim, this was a real thrill for us. Um, yeah, we're really fun. grateful for you coming on, and I think you know our goal of today was to just get a little bit more inside your guys's heads to hopefully help the average weekend hack out there or the aspiring professional um, to maybe take something for their game and, and improve. Cause everything you guys did is inspiring and um, hopefully someone can take something from this conversation for them. So thanks so much for coming on, Tim. We're going to be rooting for you at Tory. Um, it's a course I've played many times too. I actually picked my address so that I could play Tory for $30 when I moved there. So it's one of my favorite places. Best of luck. Guys, thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to do this after the US Open as well. And uh, Evan, one last time, go Devils. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. All thanks, right, Tim. we'll be rooting for you. See you, Tim. See you guys.